This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hear that? You hear it? Underneath the music? Crickets, yeah. Republican Party yet again silent on remarks by Donald Trump. Shocking remarks. Lead starts right now. Donald Trump on a 2024 campaign of vengeance and vile remarks, vowing to root out his political opponents if he's elected, belittling everyone who's against him as vermin, and making some rather extreme plans to round up every undocumented immigrant in the U.S. and put them in camps. Meanwhile, Donnie Trump Jr. back on the stand, cracking a joke about perjury as the defense team begins their case in civil fraud. Plus. CNN cameras going deeper into Gaza than any past reports, this time up close near Hamas tunnels under a hospital running to the heart of the terrorist operation. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You know, it's become cliche to ask Americans how they might respond to something Donald Trump has said, to ask if such a thing were taking place in another country, what they might think. It's so cliche, in fact, that I've never asked you to engage in this exercise. But his comments as of late have been so stark and so shocking that I am now going to ask you to remove yourself from what you may now have all become numb to in terms of American politics and try to look at what we are all being subjected to from a different perspective. Say a top politician in, I don't know, Canada, and ask yourself, what would be your response? What would be your response if a candidate for Canadian prime minister started calling anyone in Canada who opposes him, who criticizes him, calling them vermin? Vermin that he would root out and expunge from the fine nation of Canada. What would you say? No doubt you would be shocked. No doubt you would be disgusted. No doubt any major political candidate in Canada using language like that, language that recalls Mussolini and Hitler, you would be disgusted by. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. What would you say if a potential prime minister in Canada, a leading candidate to, to run that great country, said that he or she after being elected, was going to use the government to exact revenge on anyone who had criticized him. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Okay, so you know this is not a theoretical exercise. The Washington Post has reported that Donald Trump has been mapping out specific plans to use specific parts of the federal government to punish his critics, to go after his opponents. And that according to people who have talked to Trump, Trump has said in private that he wants the Justice Department to investigate and possibly prosecute, among others, 
his former chief of staff, Marine General John Kelly, his former attorney general, Bill Barr, his former attorney, Ty Cobb, and former Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley. Another plan that Donald Trump is being open about, rounding up the millions of undocumented immigrants in the United States and putting them in camps, putting them in camps, detention camps, to await deportation. So th there's no candidate in Canada like that. You know that. And I'm sorry to my Canadian brothers and sisters for even suggesting such a thing. And, and there are, look, there are conservative leaders all over the world. The conservative leader of the UK right now. There's a conservative, conservative leader in Italy. There's one in Greece. They, they don't sound anything like that. The only major Western leader who sounds like this is Donald Trump right here in the United States. And his language, calling his opponents, quote, vermin is shocking and his proposals about using the justice department to go after critics it's unfathomable and it's anti-democratic now the washington post reached out to the trump campaign to get a response to how his language this vermin terminology echoes that of previous dictators like mussolini and hitler a spokesman for mr trump said quote those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House, unquote. What better way to prove you do not have authoritarian instincts than by promising your critics' entire existence will be crushed upon returning to the White House? We're going to start today with CNN's Kristen Holmes, who's been following the increasingly harsh, dire, authoritarian language coming from Donald Trump and his campaign this weekend. Former President Donald Trump ramping up his inflammatory rhetoric. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous and grave than the threat from within denigrating his political opponents on the left as, quote, vermin during a Veterans Day speech in New Hampshire. We will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. The White House condemning Trump's remarks, likening them to language used by authoritarian leaders. Quote, using terms like that about dissent would be unrecognizable to our founders, but horrifyingly recognizable to American veterans who put on their country's uniform in the 1940s. White House spokesperson Andrew Bates said in a statement, as the former president commands the GOP primary with his combative rhetoric, his allies are already planning an agenda for a potential second term. The proposals include leveraging the Department of Justice to go after his political rivals. If they do this, as they've already done it, but if they want to follow through on this, uh, yeah, it could certainly happen in reverse. The 2025 agenda would also expand the hardline immigration policies Trump pursued during his first term in office. We will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. With the mass detention and deportation of undocumented immigrants. I will shut down this travesty, terminate all work permits for legal aliens and demand that Congress send me a bill outlawing all welfare payments to illegal migrants of any kind. It's part of an escalation in anti-immigrant language by the former president. It's poisoning the blood of our country. 
Uh, it's so bad. And people are coming in with disease. People are coming in with with every possible thing that you can have. Trump's darkening political rhetoric appears to resonate with Republicans, as South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who campaigned on a more optimistic message, ended his presidential bid Sunday. I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. And Jake, the Trump 2025 potential agenda that we've laid out here really is just the tip of the iceberg. We have heard from sources who say that Trump allies are building a database of loyalists, people who would want to serve Donald Trump and follow through with these policies on day one, as well as allies working with attorneys who are crafting executive orders that the former president could sign on day one to put out those policies. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. I want to bring in Democratic strategist uh, Nayara Huck and CNN political commentator uh, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, Jonah, um, let me start with you, and let me start with this word vermin, uh, which is quite uh, evocative. Um, Here's how RNC chair uh, Ronna McDaniel responded uh, to Trump's remarks when asked about it. I'm not going to talk about candidates that are in a contested primary. You can talk to him about what he's saying. You can talk to him about what he's saying. Former uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney slammed McDaniel on Twitter for not commenting, saying she, quote, refuses to condemn the GOP's leading candidate for using the same Nazi propaganda that mobilized 1930s, 40s Germany to evil. It's fair to assume she's collaborating. Um, What is the RNC chair's uh, responsibility here when Trump uses, I mean, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that. I mean, that is Mussolini, Hitler-like language. Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing she could do is, is release the text of the speech in the original German, which would be helpful. <laughs> um, look, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel about the piling on of uh, McDaniel the way I felt about Vivek Ramaswamy attacking her in a debate. She's a symptom of a much larger problem. The party is not a thing. It's, it's, it's this paper tiger. She is appointed by Trump. She's a creature of Trump. Um, in a, in a perfect world, or in a perfect world, in a better world, both parties would have a much more robust ability to screen candidates, to say, look, there are some things that are beyond the pale. You can't run under our label. But those days are behind us. Yeah. And now you're, uh, your guy, Joe Biden, could lose to this guy. Isn't that horrifying, right? That the idea that somebody who has stood up for American values and talks about democracy on the world stage somehow in the caricatures that have gone online and that have been part of the public discourse, um, he's not. He's neck and neck with that. Um, I will say, though, that Biden does have an opportunity here, uh, given the war between Israel and Hamas and given the challenges of China, that national security and the U.S. standing on the world stage is something that is becoming top of mind for Americans in a way that we have not seen for many years. So in that context, talking about how the U.S. plays on the world stage, what does it mean to be American on the world stage? That certainly is an argument that favors uh, Biden, not Trump. And, and there's no secret here, Jonah, about Trump's potential second term plans. I mean, he will there won't be a, a John Kelly or a Bill Barr. You know, there won't be guardrails. I mean, people people were very, very critical of John Kelly and Bill Barr. But at the end of the day, they had some idea of what guardrails should exist. And, uh, you know, like a Doug McGregor, uh, who was a Pentagon official in the Trump administration, was was criticized for anti-Semitic tropes. He's out there on X today saying that Israel support is only because of money, the same stuff that Ilhan Omar got criticized for, but nobody on the right's going to criticize Doug McGregor for it. 
you know, he could be like a secretary of defense in a Trump administration because he's so loyal. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, this is one of the areas where I think Ron DeSantis is actually right. He just hasn't pressed the case very much, which is that it's not the same Donald Trump anymore. He has now become, as, as weird as it is to say, far more of a caricature of Donald Trump than he was in 2016. Um, and he has surrounded himself. I mean, it's, it's important to point out that like, one of the bulwarks against a lot of this stuff will be Federalist Society, Trump-appointed judges who want no part of it, which is why now the lawyers around Trump all want to reject Federalist Society people. They think they're too lame, too tired. It is a completely, it is an insurgent movement within the right that is not conservative. I mean, uh, uh, Bannon said in an interview over the weekend that uh, he says, look, Trump is a moderate in our movement. We got guys in magazine First Thing calling for how America needs a new Pinochet. It's, it's a hot mess on the right. And oh. meanwhile, the Democrats are shooting their own. You have, you have Dean Phillips uh, running against Joe Biden. You have people like uh, Congresswoman Tlaib uh, talking about how people shouldn't vote for Joe Biden because she doesn't like uh, his support for Israel. Um, there isn't the robust support for the Democratic Party from the Democratic Party. Oh, well, they, this happens every time you have an incumbent president. You have people who are looking for their own opportunities to advance themselves within the party's agenda, right? The idea that um, comments right now are going to permanently ding Biden when it comes to election day, when it becomes the one-on-one -on -one binary choice, I think those are a bit overblown, though there are some concerns um, about Biden and his ability to turn out voters in key districts and what the map looks like. Right now, you really have the Republican Party in disarray and on display of how they're all competing for second place and spending all this money and energy for second place to somebody who is telling us very clearly he has no interest in upholding any of the norms of democracy or ever being accountable to the people, to the public. So that is the piece that you will not see any yeah, of the Democrats I, I, argue that they will, they will at the end of the day support the Constitution of the United States. I, I, I agree. The right is a hot mess, that Donald Trump would be a disaster as another pre or another term in office. At the same time, to my point about weak parties, the GOP isn't the only weak party in the field. Joe Biden, according to most Democrats and most Americans, is too old for the job and not up for the job. Um, most but Americans only, like, don't want- three years older than Donald Trump, right? Yeah, but, Let's but that's not the point. Yeah, but it has to do with the mental acuity and it also it's, has to do with the fact that- The perception of the voters is what it is. Yeah, and look, most Americans don't want either of these guys to run. And if we lived in a country with strong parties, neither would be the nominee. But instead, we have a, a Democratic party that is too weak to find out an alternative and a Republican party that is too weak to stand up to Donald Trump. And it's a hot mess. Okay, on that note, uh, Jonah Goldberg and Nayara Huck, thank you so much. Uh, drinks are on me uh, in about an hour and a half. Donald Trump's oldest son, Donnie Jr., just stepped off the witness stand. What he said about the future of the Trump family business under the threat of a civil fraud case that could shut down the Trump organization's operations in New York. Plus, an American teenager shot and trapped in a hospital in Gaza. Her plea to the U.S. as the Israeli military accuses that hospital of housing Hamas. In our Law and Justice lead today, Donald Trump Jr. back on the stand today in the $250 million civil fraud trial in New York against the Trump family business. Last week, when he was called by the state of New York, Don Jr. testified that he had no direct involvement in the company's annual financial statements. Today, Trump Jr. was called as the first witness by his father's defense team, and the son walked the court through a promotional PowerPoint of various Trump properties, calling his father, quote, an artist with real estate, unquote, pointing out details such as the vault at 40 Wall Street, the inside of Mar-a-Lago, 
and the library at Seven Springs. This was an attempt to show that, if anything, the Trump properties were undervalued in those financial statements. Let's bring in former personal attorney and fixer for Donald Trump, author of the book Revenge and author of Mea Culpa, Michael Cohen. Michael, good to see you. What do you make uh, of Don Jr. referring to his father as an artist when it comes to real estate? Well, I'm not so sure that I would call him an artist. In fact, if you look at the properties that Don Jr. put up on that PowerPoint, Donald is not the creator of any of those. He was just the purchaser. Mar-a-Lago, obviously, he didn't build. That was Marjorie Merriweather Post. He didn't build uh, Seven Springs, uh, nor did he build, uh, you know, for example, Bedminster. These were, that was the former DeLorean estate. So, and, and 40 Wall Street, obviously, as well. He acquired that property. Details, details, Michael. When you testified last month, you, yes, you, it's always details. <laughs> you described on the stand how, how you manipulated Trump's financial statements. You described it as, quote, reverse engineering. Um, do you think that's what Don Jr. is doing kind of with his PowerPoint presentation today? Well, I think what Don is really doing here is he's holding the Trump line, uh, which is what we were all supposed to and required to do. In fact, they should probably change the name from MAGA to MEGA, M-E-G-A, which is make Angoron gag again. Because when I sat on that stand, I watched as Judge Angoron was just, you know, getting visibly nauseous from the lies that were being told uh, by the Trump team, uh, by Trump's counsel, by Don. Jr. that he was merely a broker, that Eric Trump was merely a guy who, you know, laid concrete. And so none of which, of course, anybody believes to be accurate or truthful. When it comes to this or any other case, do you think Donald Trump deserves to go to jail? So, look, that, that's a question that's been posed to me. The answer is he needs to be held accountable. And do I believe if it was anyone else that that individual would already be in prison or jail? The answer is emphatically yes. But because he was the former president of the United States and for four years he was debriefed on a daily basis, our national security secrets, I personally, as an American citizen, I would be concerned because Donald is the kind of guy that would sell any of that information for like a bag of tuna, right, or a book of stamps. And I do really mean that. Um, it's dangerous for America to have somebody like Donald Trump in an environment where he can share the information. Look, he's already shared it already with members of Mar-a-Lago, as well as other individuals that came to visit. So why would he not do it if it would benefit him somehow, in some way, in a prison situation? So what does accountability look like, do you think? A very significant home confinement scenario where he doesn't have people coming and going at leisure. He's certainly not going to be playing golf. Uh, he's going to have to fund the, um, we'll call the Bureau of Prisons, to ensure that there's uh, a guard that's there uh, watching the property. His phones would be monitored. There wouldn't be computer access. The same exact life, other than the fact He's not sharing a cell with somebody. He's sharing the house by himself. What do you make of this Washington Post report that Trump and his allies are, are looking, if he, if he becomes president again, to use the levers of government, the Justice Department, to punish critics and, and opponents? And are you worried that he would target you? 
Well, 100%. First of all, he already did. Uh, December 14th, I'm going before the appellate court on the case of Michael Cohen versus the United States government, where he and Bill Barr, Department of Justice, uh, and the Bureau of Prisons, that they conspired that to, um, to infringe upon my First Amendment constitutional right, making me the very first political prisoner held by my own country because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment constitutional right, not publish my book Disloyal, not do television appearances, not do media, etc. If, if anybody thinks that this is a one-off, if Donald Trump becomes President of the United States again, it's not just going to be me being the very first person that this happened to, there's going to be a multitude of people, possibly yourself included, Jake. Uh, yeah, that, that has occurred to me. Uh, but they, in the Washington Post article, they talk about John Kelly, uh, Bill Barr, uh, Ty Cobb, and General Mark Milley. I mean, he talked about executing Mark Milley. Could you imagine the man, a general, who has given his life to serving and protecting this country as opposed to Captain Bonespur that avoided his, you know, his responsibility, that he wants to have this man executed because he's angry at him. And then there are still Americans that want to do what? They want to support him both financially and by voting. I don't understand what's happening here. Michael Cohen, good to see you, sir. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to see you, Jake. Coming up next, CNN deeper inside Gaza. Bullets flying, buildings leveled. We'll show you the footage just in from our crew. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The focus of the fighting in Gaza has become hospitals in and around them, which Israel insists Hamas is using to shield its fighters. A U.S. official with knowledge of the American intelligence tells me that Hamas specifically has a command node under the Al-Shifa hospital, that Hamas uses fuel intended for that hospital, and that members of Hamas regularly cluster in and around that hospital. And yet, of course, hundreds of patients remain at that hospital and others in Gaza 
trapped by the fighting. CNN's Nick Robertson embedded with the Israel Defense Forces. And Nick, our, our viewers should know that CNN reported from Gaza under IDF escort at all times. CNN did not submit its script or footage to the IDF and has retained editorial control over the final report. Where were you today? What did you see? We went to Al Rantisi Hospital. It's a children's hospital five miles into Gaza, beyond the Jabalia refugee camp, close to Gaza City. Uh, it's a long way inside, and on the journey there, we rode in open top vehicles a long way into uh, Gaza itself, driving along the coast highway or what's left of it. I have to say I've never seen a scale and level of destruction in more than 30 years of war reporting that we saw along the road on the drive-in. Uh, Single-story buildings uh, demolished, blown up, uh, villas demolished, blown up, stores demolished, blown up. And the soldiers we were with, the IDF troops with us said, look, uh, we've been in those buildings, or at least some of those buildings, we found rocket-propelled grenades. Uh, the, this was an area that Hamas was using to attack the troops as they went in. This is what they say they've discovered. Uh, and when I talked to the senior commander who was there with us about the level of destruction, he said, look, this is Hamas hiding among the people. We went on that coast road witnessing all this destruction. The road turned to dust um, and, and changed into an armored vehicle to go right into the center of uh, the area around the hospital, the edge of Jabalia camp. There was still intense fighting around the, around the hospital, uh, tanks firing. Uh, we had to take cover several times from gunfights gun going on. We went, we went there to see the top IDF spokesman, Admiral Daniel Hagari. He wanted to show us the connection that the IDF believes there is with Hamas and hospitals and schools. And one of the first things he showed us was uh, a tunnel entrance that was connected, he showed us, uh, by power cables to solar panels on the top of a Hamas leader's house. We could see, the, could see the solar panels, see the cables going down into the tunnel. The tunnel was very close to the hospital. There were big diggers out there in the street, despite the firefights, trying to find the tunnel connection to, to the hospital. He said that was under investigation. When we got to the hospital, the back of Rentisi Hospital, he said they'd arrived there five days ago, that it was still occupied. They'd negotiated with the hospital officials to evacuate all the uh, patients and staff from the hospital. That had happened. But he said when they were going to get in the hospital, there was a, they were taking fire from Hamas. They blew their way into the back of the, back of the hospital. Um, and he showed us in their weapons caches that they'd found and places, evidence that appeared to indicate ropes around chairs, women's clothing, and other things that indicated that Hamas may, may have been holding hostages there, including a rotor for guards, for guard duty, uh, in this underground part of the hospital. That is breaking the conventions of international humanitarian law when it comes to protections of hospitals. That is according to the International Committee of the Red Cross. Yeah, 240 hostages. Hamas has held them for uh, more than a month now. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Also today, the IDF sent to journalists a highly edited video, apparently from a drone, showing what the IDF says is a, is a man carrying a rocket-propelled grenade launcher at the entrance of a different Gaza hospital, the Al-Quds Hospital. The Israeli ministry today said it killed a group of Hamas fighters embedded among civilians at that hospital, the Al-Quds Hospital. Separately, CNN's Jamana Karadja has been to the hospital and spoken with some of the patients trapped 
by the fighting, including an American teenager who was wounded trying to leave Gaza and is desperately trying to get out of it. We want to warn you, some of Jamana's report contains graphic content. Darkness has descended on yet another Gaza medical facility, Al-Quds Hospital, where they've been trying to save lives with the very little they had left. But it's become nearly impossible. This was Al-Quds just hours before Gaza's second largest hospital was declared out of service on Sunday. Like other hospitals in the north, the fighting has been closing in on Al-Quds, where thousands of displaced had been sheltering alongside the injured. Among them are at least two U.S. citizens, Farah Abu Alba and her mother, Noha. I want to feel like, oh, I can move my fingers. My fingers are gone now. Farah says she was injured in an attack on their bus on the road south as they tried to make their way for a third time to the Rafah crossing with Egypt. The family blames Israel, whose military denied to CNN that they struck that street on that day. I walked from the beach, like it was probably three miles from the beach to the hospital. I could have given up. I felt like all my blood, all my blood dripped all over me. I, how I felt when I saw my hand falling or how I felt my skin just and my bones breaking and I, how I saw my wrist just turn blue, I knew that my hand was gone. This interview with Farah was filmed a few days ago by a journalist working for CNN on the eve of her 17th birthday, before the hospital was almost completely cut off from the outside world. When I sleep, I dream of what happened to me. I can hear the rockets when they hit me, and my sister and my mom just screaming when they saw my hand fall. This is a scene just outside the hospital. This video released by the Israeli military captures a militant carrying a rocket-propelled grenade they say was part of a group that attacked their forces. Palestinians deny anyone armed is inside and say the Israeli military is surrounding and targeting the hospital. Israel says it's targeting Hamas. Farah was born in Gaza and left with her family when she was three. They were back to visit family when the war broke out. For her father, Karam Abu Alba in Pennsylvania, the past few weeks have been hell, desperately trying to get his wife and daughters back home, exchanging almost daily emails and calls with the State Department. I'm asking, is there a, a, a class, A class B from the U.S. citizen, for all the U.S. citizens? I pay tax for the United States of America to support Israel to shoot and to bomb my daughter and my wife, I need the president, I need Mr. Blinken to listen to this message. We are a U.S. citizen. We are loyal to this country. Send the Red Cross. Send them to support the U.S. citizen. They are outside. They are not hostage with Hamas. A father's desperation to make his family's suffering heard. But like so many thousands, he feels no one is hearing Gaza's cries for help. I feel everything hopeless. I feel like I'm dead. Jumana Karache, CNN, London. And our thanks to Jumana Karache for that report. Without explanation today, President Biden said hospitals in Gaza must be protected. Up next, I'll ask John Kirby, the national security spokesman, exactly what he meant. Stay with us. 
This afternoon, President Biden said that the hospitals in Gaza, quote, must be protected. Sure, obviously, but it's not that easy necessarily, right? Because a U.S. official told me that American intelligence is backing Israel's intelligence. Hamas terrorists are using Al-Shifa hospital as a command center and stealing fuel from the hospital. Joining us now, retired Rear Admiral and National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby. So Admiral, obviously the innocent patients, innocent doctors, innocent nurses, innocent people in any hospital should be protected 100%. Um, but U.S. intelligence, according to the source that spoke with me, says there's a, a, a command node under the hospital, Hamas command node under the hospital, and Hamas people gather in the hospital. So when he says the hospital must be protected, elaborate on that. Well, he's referring to this uh, extra burden that faces the IDF as they go uh, into Gaza because Hamas does shelter themselves uh, behind uh, civilian infrastructure, be it hospitals, schools, tunnels under houses and apartment buildings. They deliberately pl place the people of Gaza at greater risk by how they, by how they operate and conduct themselves. And so uh, it's a tough problem set for the Israeli Defense Forces. Le legitimate targets are terrorists and uh, Hamas leaders, of course, and their ability to continue to conduct planned resource operations, also legitimate uh, targets. But when you bury those targets inside civilian infrastructure, particularly a hospital where there's innocent patients and little kids who have severe issues that, uh, that need looking after, it makes it much harder for any military force uh, to go after those targets uh, because the hospital itself ought to be, as the president said, ought to be protected. So he's really talking about this uh, incredibly difficult conundrum that Israeli military forces are facing right now. Um Axios reports on details of a possible deal in which 80 women and children kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th uh, would be released in exchange for Palestinian women and teenagers uh, who are currently being held in Israeli prisons. I know you can't comment on the details of an exchange, but as, as families of hostages um, held by Hamas come to D.C. tomorrow, are they going to be reassured that, that a deal may be on the horizon? They'll have an opportunity to talk to leaders here in D.C., including Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, um, and he will let them know. He'll make sure they know uh, that from the early hours, we have been doing everything we can, working with partners in the region, including those who have direct communications with Hamas that we don't. Uh, to get those hostages relieved, uh, released, all of them, not just the small number of Americans that we know they're holding, but all of them. Um, I, I don't think that uh, uh, we'll be able to give them a whole lot of specific detail about the conversations and the negotiations that are ongoing. We don't want to jeopardize them or put that or put it in any chance of, 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 uh, of going under. But I, I do believe they will hear a strong commitment from Mr. Sullivan, from this administration that we're working on this problem set very, very hard. I'm old enough to remember the uh, Iranian hostage crisis in 79, uh, 80. And you and I have talked about hostages and detainees for years now, Trevor Reed and, and others. Yeah. Um, I'm really struck by something uh, in the last 30 or so days, especially as the White House earlier today confirmed that, that one of the estimated 240 hostages kidnapped by Hamas and other uh, groups in Gaza, one of them is a three-year-old American child. Um, there are people in the United States, loud voices, um, 
who shown this, this crisis in which there are Americans and innocent people, innocent Israelis, taken hostage, are actually rooting for the hostage takers. Um, and we see these images seemingly every day of Americans ripping down posters yeah. of kidnapped kids, kidnapped children. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts as you see this? Because I've, I've never seen anything like this. It's hard for me when I see images like that and hear those stories to think about this individual ripping down this poster, going home and feeling good about what they did, uh, feeling good about the dignity they robbed uh, of a family, the humanity they robbed of, uh, of a little baby, a little child being held hostage by a terrorist group. Frankly, they ought to be mourning the loss, the theft of their own dignity, their own integrity by doing something like that. I mean, these are these victims, these hostages, they didn't ask for this. They were living their lives, a normal life, going to a music festival and being at home with their families. They didn't ask to be taken hostage, but they are. And I think it's important for people to remember, Jake, that that was Hamas's plan all along. Yes, to slaughter, and they did, to a fairly well. But they also deliberately set out to take hostages, to use as bargaining chips, uh, and that's what they've been doing. It's reprehensible, and I don't think anybody who thinks it should be okay to rip down posters of these individuals to go home and feel good about that. There's, that's just theft. Theft of your own dignity, theft of your integrity, theft of their humanity. Also, not that the politics of the victims matter, but so many of the people that were killed or kidnapped were peace activists who were on the Israeli left, who yeah. were Netanyahu opponents, who wanted a two-state solution, who were working with Gazans, providing them with jobs. Again, that doesn't matter, but Anyway, Admiral John Kirby, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, sir. Off to Capitol Hill next, where Speaker Mike Johnson is waging a war among his own Republican conference to try to prevent a government shutdown. The perennial story. I feel like I cover this every couple months, doesn't it? And facing an uphill battle. Stay with us. In our politics lead, after a long holiday weekend, members of Congress dragged themselves back to Washington, D.C. this afternoon to try to prevent a government shutdown at the end of the week. I got, I really, how often do I do this story? I feel like they just put this in the teleprompter like every three months. Oh, anyway, back to this. House Speaker Mike Johnson released a two-tiered spending plan that funds some government agencies until January and others until February. Not because Johnson wants two more shutdown crises, but he says it's to, quote, place House Republicans in the best position to fight for conservative victory. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Speaker Johnson's plan does have a familiar problem, Manu. Let me guess what it is. Yeah, he Republican. doesn't have Republican votes. He doesn't have enough Republican votes. That's absolutely right. In fact, at the moment, Johnson trying to court his Republican colleagues. I just spoke to one of them, Andy Ogles, who let, walked out of Speaker Johnson's office and said he plans to vote against this plan, also could have voted against the first vote, which is the critical vote, the rule. That sets the parameters for the floor debate. That rule must be adopted in order for the bill to get approved by a majority vote. Typically, members vote along party lines to support that rule, but in this Congress, members of the the hard right Freedom Caucus have voted to sink the rule when it does not align with their legislative priorities. Well, in this case, that is a threat right now being waged by a number of Republicans, including Congressman Chip Roy, who sits on the House Rules Committee and just told a group of reporters, including myself just moments ago, that he plans to vote against that rule, leaving Johnson little margin for error. Right now, I oppose this measure. I think it's a mistake. I, I don't support the rule advancing it. And uh, I think he should switch directions to like he did last week with a very good 
move by putting Israel forward, paid for, out of the, Israel, uh, out of the IRS expansion. That this bill is brought up under suspension. Yeah, that would be a very bad idea. So if the rule is not able to be passed, then there are two options. One of which is to what's called suspending the rules, allowing the bill to be approved to avoid a shutdown by a two-thirds majority in the House. You heard Chip Roy saying there that would be a very bad idea. Another thing would be to ask Democrats to help supply the votes to pass, put the rule over the finish line. That is something that is, would cause significant blowback for the new speaker amid his right flank. And Jake, this all comes as Democrats are non-committal yet about supporting this plan. The House Democratic leaders say they are looking very carefully at it. And the reason why, though, it is expected that Democrats will likely support this at the end of the day is it does not have spending cuts that Chip Roy and others had demanded. The Speaker going this approach to avoid a fight with Democrats, but in the result, picking a fight with his own party that he's trying to resolve by tomorrow, Jake. Mono, it's just you and me. No one's listening. Do you ever get tired of covering the same story over <laughs> and seriously, no, one's, no one else is watching? <laughs> it, does, it is Groundhog Day up here, Jake. There's right. no question about it. You can tell me later. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Coming up, an alarming spike in incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia ignited by the war between Israel and Hamas. How much is this moment of global tension and rising anti-Semitism different from past conflicts? Stay with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the FBI investigation into New York City's Democratic Mayor Eric Adams, his connections to the Turkish government and what the feds might have been looking for when they seized his cell phone and iPad. A reporter following the money will be here. Plus, one of the most upsetting videos from October 7th, which says a lot. It shows a 19-year-old woman, a kidnapping victim, being taken out of a Hamas jeep. Her pants are bloodied. Her mother will join us to talk about why that video was so important for the world to see. And leading this hour, the world's reaction since the Hamas attacks, divisive, combative, ugly, eating, even leading to deadly demonstrations as opposing groups take sides. Some people ripping down posters of children kidnapped, anti-Semitism reaching dangerous, alarming rates worldwide. Also a spike in Islamophobia and anti-Arab and anti-Muslim incidents. And not just in the United States. This is happening all over the world. Let's start this hour with the ongoing conflict fueling all of this. A U.S. official telling me that American intelligence backs Israel's showing that Hamas terrorists are using Al-Shifa Hospital as a command center and stealing fuel from the hospital. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is in Ashkelon, Israel. Jeremy, Israel's military has released some highly produced videos backing up some of the claims. Tell us what they show us. 
Yeah, Jake, the Israeli military has for weeks now been trying to build up this case that Al-Shifa hospital, where its forces appear to be at the gates of this hospital now, they've been building up the case for weeks now that uh, underneath this sprawling medical complex, uh, Gaza's largest hospital, claiming that Hamas below it operates one of its largest command and control centers. And as you said, U.S. officials now appear to be backing up that claim, saying that Hamas is indeed using this facility. And they have released imagery, satellite imagery, that shows where they say that some of these locations are based. They have released 3D graphics uh, claiming to show the in, uh, what these facilities look like uh, below ground. Uh, and uh, right now, Jake, we are also learning new information about Al-Rantisi Hospital, a children's hospital in Gaza where Israeli officials say that they found a cache of weapons in the basement. We can't independently verify uh, those claims, of course, but they have released video showing some of those weapons, which appear to include AK-47s and suicide vests uh, and, and other uh, weaponry, as well as what they say is potential evidence that hostages were also being held uh, in, in the basement of Al-Rantisi Hospital. Uh, they show a room that has curtains draped around it uh, and uh, a woman's, uh, so, some evidence that a woman may have been uh, in that area. Now, today, Israeli forces also released evidence uh, that they say shows a Hamas militant with an RPG weapon near the entrance of Al-Quds Hospital. This is Gaza's second largest hospital where there has been some fierce fighting between Israeli forces and Hamas militants. And uh, uh, hospital officials have been talking about Israeli forces surrounding the hospital. And so today, Israeli military releasing this video uh, appearing to show uh, a man with a rocket-propelled grenade on his shoulder uh, in front of the entrance. Now, we can't independently verify when this video was taken, but we can confirm that the image does indeed show the entrance to Al-Quds Hospital. Jeremy, what are you hearing, if anything, from doctors at these hospitals? Well, Jake, they are just describing an absolutely catastrophic situation uh, inside several of Gaza's major hospitals. A total breakdown at uh, Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest uh, hospital in the Strip, where uh, doctors appear to be running out of medical supplies. There are major power outages forcing them to wrap premature babies who were in incubators and the power went out and so they were forced to wrap them in foil and blankets and put them near warm water in an effort to try and keep them warm. Uh, doctors who have been offered ways to evacuate the hospital by the Israeli military say that they are not leaving because they are concerned that the hundreds of patients who are still at that hospital would die if they left. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. For Muslims, and Jews throughout the world, it is a time fraught with tension and in some cases, unfortunately, physical violence. CNN's Nick Watt reports on the widening global fissures. An American college campus Saturday, seven arrests at a pro-Palestinian demonstration after what Brandeis officials call threatening language and hate speech. Central London, the same day, a pro-Palestinian rally, far-right counter-protesters, chaos. Suella Braverman, who held the key post of Home Secretary, was fired Monday morning after calling such pro-Palestinian demonstrations hate marches. Suella Braverman's comments have caused a lot of division. Paris Sunday, thousands marched against anti-Semitism, which has spiked in France since the Hamas terror attacks 
and the Israeli response. We mustn't import conflicts that are happening elsewhere into our country, she says. Fear and anger emanating from the Middle East are going global, stoking anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Get away! In Brooklyn, a man wearing a keffiyeh scarf says he was attacked by a woman who accused him of supporting terror. The Council on American-Islamic Relations received over 1,200 requests for help and reports of anti-Muslim bias in the month since October 7. Triple the figure from the same time last year. College campuses are a flashpoint. At UCLA, demonstrators battered piñatas on campus, showing the faces of President Biden and the Israeli Prime Minister. Anti-Semitic emails sent to staff at UPenn, Islamophobic emails sent to Muslim student groups at UConn. The problem on campus right now has reached a critical point, and really a point we have never seen in hundreds of years of higher education in America. Jewish Voice for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine have been suspended by Columbia University for unauthorized events violating school policy. The groups could not be reached for comment. We are well beyond a time for words of support or expressions of understanding. We need serious, aggressive, concrete action. A Jewish legal organization has filed civil rights complaints against UPenn and Wellesley College, claiming both have failed to protect Jewish students. Neither school has commented. The student residential staff of one of our dorms stated in an email that there should be no space for Zionism on campus whatsoever. There is a way to criticize, for example, the Israeli government and not be anti-Semitic. At Ohio State University, the Hillel Jewish Student Center was vandalized and two students attacked after being asked if they were Jewish. Police calling it a hate crime. Now, there was an interesting little flip-flop at MIT over the past few days. Apparently, a protest and a counter-protest got a little out of hand. So College Brass threatened students if they didn't disperse by a deadline, they would be suspended. Then it appears they found out that quite a few of the students involved are foreign nationals. So if they were suspended, they would lose their visas and they'd be thrown out of the country. So MIT dialed back a little bit and said, well, as an interim measure, we're going to suspend them just from non-academic activities on campus. So they stay enrolled, they keep their visas, they stay in the country. Jake. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to talk about the MIT situation with a, a college student in a little bit, but let's talk about this in a more global way now with the former Deputy Director of National Intelligence and CNN National Security Analyst, uh, uh, Beth Sanner. So, uh, Beth, um, earlier today I, I reported that a U.S. official with knowledge of the intelligence says that Hamas terrorists are using Al-Shifa Hospital as a, there's a command node underneath the hospital. They're stealing fuel, fuel that is meant for the hospital. Hamas is taking it. They, Hamas, militants, terrorists are gathering around there, using it as a place to hang out. Um, this obviously is what Hamas does. It's not a secret. Right. Um, I'm not trying to take a position on what the IDF is doing one way or another, um, but it, it does seem odd to me. And again, I'm, 
I'm not taking a position on what the IDF is doing. Mm -hmm. But it does seem odd to me that there isn't more criticism of what Hamas is doing because they are obviously putting their own people in, in harm's way. It's purposeful. It was what we talked about the very first day we, this happened on October 7th, you and I, we talked about you know, what Hamas is trying to do here, drawing in a, a Israeli reaction to try to change the narrative so they are the victims. And, you know, and unfortunately, this is an information war that Hamas so far seems to be largely winning. And, um, and not just here on our college campuses, but, you know, globally. And so that's, that's a huge concern. You know, U.S. interests here are different in some ways than Israeli interests. And we have How to so? start well, thinking about that. Okay. Well, Israel's existence, Israel's interest is existence. Right. Survival. Right. Um, U.S. And in U.S. interest definitely has that there. Right. But we also have broader interests. Right. We are in a war of global influence and the future prosperity of America with China and Russia. And our interests there are, are really much bigger in some ways. So, so this is what's difficult about being a policymaker in this environment, right. is that you have these interests that often are competing. The world is not black and white. It is filled with gray sure. and filled with contradictions. And working those things out is what we're struggling to do, what the administration's struggling to do. And I think that, you know, they're trying to recalibrate right now. That's what we're seeing. So if you were president right now, obviously you want... <laughs> Thank God I'm not. Okay. So obviously, <laughs> obviously it's in the best interests of the United States and the best interests of, of everyone for the war to be over as quickly as possible. Right. Netanyahu's position, and it's probably supported, even though I don't think that there's much chance that Netanyahu is going to last as prime minister for much longer based on my conversations with Israelis when I was there. Yeah. But Netanyahu's position is we have to destroy... Hamas, and I think the Israeli people are with him in that. They think a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah that we we cannot allow we the the policy since two thousand seven mm -hmm. when Hamas took over is basically it was just containment. Let's just contain them. Right. And I don't think very many people in Israel think that that's possible anymore. We can't contain them after what they did October seventh. That's right. How how do you how does one get rid of Hamas in in Gaza? Well, look. I you know, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback what the Biden administration has done, but like let's Saturday evening quarterback what should be done from here on out. Right. Starting now. And and I think that one of the things we can certainly do is is lay down very, very firmly what Israel cannot do in the West Bank. We're all focused on Gaza and that place is going to blow because Netanyahu is allowing settlers to That's displace easy. You are 100% right, and we will talk. But we're not doing that. No, and, you, and we'll, we're going to talk about Ben Gavir and Smoltrick, let's say tomorrow or the next day. But maybe we should be talking about that now, because that is the thing that's going to blow up in our faces, and that makes a two-state solution impossible. Agreed. Let's table that for one second, because I think that's much easier to, okay. to say that everything that Netanyahu is doing there is wrong. Okay. Yeah. What about Gaza? Because I think that's tougher. How do they end Hamas and Gaza without right. doing what they're doing now, which everybody hates? Fine. Um, 
I think we should be doing both things. And I'm not going to let go of the West I'm, Bank. I'm agreeing so, with you on everything. So, I'm, okay. So, but on Gaza, I mean, I think we could, look, the Jordanians came in with a drone to resupply a right. hospital. Okay. Right. Well, why can't we do that with El Shifra? Okay. Um, why can't we make sure that more than 100 trucks, when there were 500 before the war, actually would allow people in the South to eat right. and have more than a piece of bread a day? So much more humanitarian aid. I think much more humanitarian okay. aid because, you know, you can talk, 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 and, and you're not showing anything. But at the same time, I mean, let's face it, it's true that you can't constrain IDF to the point where they can't accomplish something quickly because, and I think this is the big dilemma, because the longer this goes on, the harder and harder it gets for us to balance these other interests, right? And this is, I think, the big dilemma, is that you want them to slow down because of the humanitarian thing, but you want them to speed up because your broader interests are for this to go quickly. Yeah, but I, I'm not blowing off the West Bank thing, and I'm working on we're working on a piece right now for this week about it. I, I don't want you to think I'm blowing it off. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Pentagon today identified the five U.S. Army Special Operations soldiers killed in a helicopter crash in the region on Friday. The Defense Department says the team was conducting refueling training over the eastern Mediterranean Sea when their MH-60 Black Hawk helicopter had some sort of in-flight emergency. Those killed included Chief Warrant Officer 3, Stephen Dwyer, he was 38 years old from Clarksville, Tennessee, and a U.S. Military Academy graduate. Chief Warrant Officer 2, Shane Barnes, he was 34 from Sacramento, California. He had an English literature degree from Gonzaga University. Staff Sergeant Tanner Grone was 26 from Gorham, New Hampshire. 27-year-old Andrew Southard was from Apache Junction, Arizona. He volunteered with this unit. He finished training just this year. The youngest of this team was Sergeant Cade Wolf, only 24, from Mankato, Minnesota. He enlisted in the Army in 2018. In addition to training, the Pentagon says these special ops forces were also in the region on standby just in case Americans needed to be evacuated due to the Israel-Hamas war. May their memories be a blessing. As mentioned, college campuses are becoming a hotbed for protest against the war. I'm going to speak with a student from the MIT campus as that college deals with the fallout. Also ahead, Donald Trump Jr. wrapping up a day in court after a day on the stand, how he tried to rehabilitate the image of the Trump Organization on the stand. That's next. As CNN's Nick Watt report, reported earlier, college campuses have become hotbeds of protest because of the Israeli-Hamas war. In many cases, of course, it's more than just people exercising their right to free speech. Uh, instead, the protests have descended into outright anti-Semitism. It's gotten to the point uh, where on many campuses, uh, Jewish students no longer even feel safe. Um, joining us now is MIT graduate student Talia Khan. She's also president of the MIT Israel Alliance. Uh, Talia, thanks for joining us. Um, so just simply put. Thank you for having me. Um, as a Jewish student at MIT, do you feel safe on campus? You know, honestly, Jake, in the past few weeks, I have not felt safe on campus. Why not? So, you know, ever since October 7th, we've seen at universities around the country that, you know, the conflict that's overseas has come to our home turf. And uh, we've had a lot of rallies and events by an organization called the Coalition Against Apartheid, which is the anti-Israel group on MIT's campus. 
And um, they, along with some local anti-Israel groups, have come to campus because MIT is an open campus, which means that anybody can walk around and, you know, be on campus. So they together have done protests on campus on the steps of Lobby 7, which is the main entrance to MIT and in front of the student center. And I mean, people protest, but but what do they do? What do they say that makes you feel unsafe? So I guess part of it is the fact of what they're saying. So when you're saying things like globalize the Intifada and use your two fists to sacrifice everything for Palestine and one solution Intifada, you know, we know what, what happened during the second Intifada. It was suicide bombings and attacks against Israeli civilians in Israel. But the other part of it is that these people aren't just protesting outside and exercising the right to free speech, which I fully support as an American. It's that they're going, you know, they went to the personal offices of a program that runs Israel internships on MIT's campus. And they went to the offices of the people who work for this program and they tried to enter. They were going from door to door trying to unlock the doors. And the people who worked in this office had no idea to what these students were trying to do by trying to get into their office. They were yelling, they were accusing them of apartheid, of ethnic cleansing, of genocide. And it was a really frightening experience. Another frightening experience that um, a friend of mine experienced is she has a child in the MIT daycare. So these people were going around campus protesting, yelling anti-Israel things, and they were doing it in front of the daycare, and she was called to pick up her child early because they were worried that it would go, it would get violent. And an MIT student who's come here from Israel, who has a child at the MIT daycare, shouldn't have to worry about her own safety, about her child's safety on campus. She should be able to focus on her studying. That's what she came to America to do. So MIT threatened to suspend some students who ignored this deadline to end a day-long protest last week, but then MIT didn't follow through. A letter from the president of MIT said in part, they didn't do that, quote, because we heard serious concerns about collateral consequences for the students, such as visa issues. We have decided as an interim action that the students who remained after the deadline will be suspended from non-academic campus activities. So in other words, they weren't punished as college rules and regulations suggested they should have been because they might have been, uh, they might have lost their visas and been, I guess, deported. What, what's your reaction to that? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can't, you know, personally react to or ha have an opinion on whether or not these visa issues should or should not play a role. I think the, the point here is that myself and other Jewish students on MIT's campus don't feel safe. And these people are, you know, repeatedly violating MIT's rules. And, you know, they're emboldened after the Thursday event when they refused to leave and they were threatened with suspension. They didn't care. And, and on Sunday, they invited over a thousand people to come to the steps of MIT and chant, you know, again, for um, globalizing the Intifada and, um, you know, from the river to the sea, just the destruction of Israel. And, you know, they were even yelling against the president of MIT, Sally Kornbluth. They had a poster with, um, th like, Sally Kornbluth's names with blood on it, um, you know, accusing her of genocide and accusing her of support because her support of Israel um, and her support of the Israel internship program that she supports genocide. And, and it's really just this kind of violent rhetoric that makes it so that people cannot, you know, study and focus at MIT because this is happening day after day. They're repeatedly violating the rules. And that's really the problem here. I'm really sorry you don't feel safe, Talia. That's really horrible. I, I went to college. I, went, I did a semester in grad school. I didn't last much longer than that, but I never felt unsafe. And that's just not acceptable.
yeah it, it's it's a very hard time for all of us so we appreciate that thank you jake and i know that your mom is a an ashkenazic jew and your dad uh is a, a muslim from afghanistan so you have a special insight into all of this uh yeah I think it's important to remember here that when people are pro-Israel, when students are pro-Israel, you know, it, it's not like a, an anti-Islam whatever. You know, I have two sides of my DNA. I have my Jewish side. I have my Afghan side that, you know, currently my Afghan side is, is crying as well because of what's happening to the Afghans in Pakistan being kicked out. So, you know, it, it really, we have to remember that everybody here is really just trying to fight for, you know, peace in the region. And, and we're not, we're not trying to, say we're anti-Palestinian or anti-something like that, you know, by saying that we're pro-Israel. We're just saying that, you know, what Hamas did is an act of terror and it's evil and it should be condemned. And we want peace for everybody in the region. Um, so, you know, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Jewish, whether you're anything. Talia Khan, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you feel safe on campus soon. Coming up next, inside the FBI's investigation into New York City Mayor Eric Adams, I'm going to talk to a reporter who says that Adams' connections to the Turkish government seem to be behind the probe. As lawmakers continue to fight on Capitol Hill over keeping the government running, there is one group who do their job every day, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. And on January 6, 2021, we all witnessed what that price means for them. It means life or death. Capitol Hill Police Officer Harry Dunn is one of the officers who showed extraordinary courage that day. And he details how his brave acts still caused him pain in his brand new book. Never in a million years would you imagine that the Capitol is going to be stormed over, run over, taken. Harry Dunn reported for work as a Capitol Police officer the morning of January 6, 2021, like it was any other day. But then they handed him a riot helmet. For hours, Dunn and hundreds of other members of law enforcement fought off the mob that stormed the Capitol. In the end, lawmakers went back to work to certify the election. Dunn went back to work, too. And now he's putting his experiences to pages in his new book, Standing My Ground. Do you ever have days up here where you don't think about January 6th? Does that ever happen? No, there aren't uh, many days that I don't think about it at all. I mean, you know, you're at the scene of the crime, yeah. so to speak. I, I work every the, day. At, every day I work at the scene of the crime. Do you ever think about resigning or getting another job or? There's still work to do. You know, there are individuals that are in this building that are still fighting for what's right and there are individuals in this building who call the people that attacked you political prisoners yeah do you walk away from it and just let that voice be the loudest and that's the one that wins or do you continue to stand up and fight and do what you think is right after the insurrection was over dunn was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress you've been very outspoken about the importance of mental health the importance of those who have uh, post-traumatic stress getting help for it. It's okay to not be okay. And you show me that some, you show me somebody that has, says they have it all together, that they're doing okay all the time, then I'll show you a liar. Nearly two years later, Dunn holds former President Trump responsible for the horrors that he and others faced that day. He is the front runner for the presidential That's nomination scary. for the Republican party. That's scary. How does that make you feel as uh, somebody who was here that day? Nervous. Um, as an American, just, it makes me nervous. How could, how can, people just don't care about January 6th then, if they can still hold him in the high regard that they do. 
that's why I keep talking up about what happened that day, because some people want to whitewash what happened and call it legitimate political discourse when it was far from that. Do you fear that if Donald Trump is the nominee and loses again, that January 6th could happen again? You know, how could, it, how could you not think that it would? You know, he, he currently still says that he did nothing wrong. So help you God. Dunn has shared his critique very publicly. What is it like, I know you do your job no matter what, but what is it like to see election liars pass you in the hallway, people who have criticized you personally pass you in the hallway, people who have lied about what happened that day pass you in the hallway. Yeah. I mean, you are responsible. You, your job is to protect them with your life. What's that like? It's my job. And, you know, whether I agree with somebody, what they said or what they do, my job is to protect that seat that they represent. Officer Dunn's book, Standing My Ground, it's a good read. It's out now. Coming up, the investigation into New York City Mayor Eric Adams, the seized cell phone, the seized iPad, reported connections to the Turkish government. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead tomorrow, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, is expected to answer questions about the federal investigation into his mayoral campaign. The New York Times headline gets at what's at issue. Quote, FBI examining whether Adams cleared red tape for Turkish government, unquote, according to the report. When Adams was the Brooklyn Borough president in 2021, he pressed the New York Fire Department to sign off on a high rise for the Turkish government, despite cited safety issues with the building. Let's bring in William Rashbaum. He's one of the New York Times reporters on this story. Thanks for joining us, William. So according to Mayor Adams, he did nothing wrong. He told CNN in a statement, quote, as a borough president, part of my routine role was to notify government agencies of issues on behalf of constituents and constituencies, unquote. Where might he have crossed the line, do you think? Well, it's, it's unclear, um, but the federal government, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office clearly uh, feel they had probable cause to seize his phones. And that uh, that is not a low bar, um, particularly with, uh, you know, a high ranking public official. Um, so we're go just going to have to wait and see where this where this goes. So. It was, it was in 2021 um, that he did that with the building, and the investigation has really escalated in the last 11 days when the FBI agents uh, raided the home of his chief fundraiser. Um, what do you make of that part of the investigation, the raid of his chief fundraiser? Well, I, I think that it, like we, have a, um, we have a narrow window into what investigators are looking at. All we know now is uh, that they're looking at whether the Turkish government uh, conspired to funnel foreign money into the campaign. They're looking at this, uh, as we reported, the, the uh, fire department approvals, uh, effort to get fire department approvals for the consulate. Um, and uh, there, may be, uh, there may be nothing else, but it would be surprising um, to take the aggressive step of seizing his phone if that was all the government was looking at. We know that they started back in April asking questions, the FBI did, about 
um, the actions related to the consulate. When we got word of the raid at his campaign fundraiser's home, Adams himself was here in D.C. He abruptly canceled the meeting he had at the White House. He headed back to New York. Any sense why he needed to rush back? I mean, the FBI was not raiding his home. Um, it's un it's unclear, Jake. I mean, one, you know, his explanation was that he, um, the the young woman whose his fundraiser whose home was raided, uh, is someone he's known for a while. She's 25 years old. He expressed concern about her uh, at a news conference last week and, and said that he came back because he he was concerned about her. Um, at the same news conference, he indicated that he had not spoken to her or seen her uh, that day when he came back. So it's it's not entirely clear why uh, uh, he turned around and, and returned. Um, but I think, you know, we may we might may find that out in 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 uh, in the near term. Your report cites a few examples of Adams and ties to the Turkish government, including, quote, in August 2015, the Turkish consulate in New York paid for Mr. Adams' airfare, hotel, and ground transportation for a trip to Turkey, unquote, where he signed a sister city agreement with Istanbul. Are there other examples that might have the attention of the feds? Well, the mayor has said that he traveled to Turkey uh, a number of times, I think more than half a dozen. Um, and, you know, the mayor is a is a avid traveler. He has um, been to many places in the world, both before he was the mayor of New York City and and after. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, they seem to be focused to some degree on uh, those trips. It's hard to say. All right, William Rashbaum, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, sir. One of the most disturbing Images from the Hamas attack shows an Israeli woman bound and bloody. She was kidnapped. I'm going to talk to her mom next. It is one of the most harrowing images from the brutal attack by Hamas on October 7th. And the video quickly went viral, a warning that the video is disturbing, but it is important to see. It shows a young Israeli woman bound and bloodied, being dragged by her Hamas captors. A woman in the video is 19 years old. Her name is Naama Levy. And her mother, Ayelet Levy Shahar, has not seen nor heard from her daughter Naama in the last 37 days, and she joins me now. Ayelet, um, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm so sorry it's under these circumstances. I cannot imagine what you're going through. I have a 16-year-old daughter. It just talking to you makes me upset, um, thinking about what you're going through. I know you've seen the, that horrific video of your daughter. Um, you say it's important uh, for people to see that, that video. W why do you think it's important? Uh, you know, I think, first of all, it, it's important to see with your own eyes what happened there. And you know there are many videos going on, going around. So this is just one of them. This is one, the one that my daughter is being kidnapped and and dragged from from the back of a vehicle by Hamas uh, military, and uh, she's handcuffed and wounded and in her pajamas. And the you know what you see there is horrific. 
and uh, it's important to see that. And it's also important that she's alive and in the hands of Hamas, ISIS. And for me, it's important because I know that I have that, and I'm, you know, I'm, I just want her back. Yeah. And it's a strong evidence of her being alive and in their hands. And as horrific as that might be, you know, it's it's from it's for me, it's it's the hope of getting her back. She, she had just started um, her national service uh, in Israel a few weeks before she was kidnapped. What can you tell us about the last time you spoke to your daughter? Uh, well, yeah, uh, I spoke to her the, the evening before on Friday. And uh, well, I was planning to come visit her the next day because uh, it was a Saturday and she stayed there. Uh, she was only two days in Nachal Oz uh, in her national service posting. And so I was planning to visit her. It's not very far from the center of Israel where we live. It's like an hour and a little bit. So we spoke and she told me what to bring her and we're planning uh, what food I'm going to bring her. And then uh, the next morning, the, the sirens went off uh, at 6.30 a.m. And uh, I went down with the other kids to the bomb shelter downstairs when, and we didn't know what was going on at that point. I, I actually thought it was some false alarm. Uh, we had no information even after, you know, the, the next half an hour, the next hour. I texted her when we came back. Uh, like five minutes before 7 a.m. Uh, Nama, are you okay? Everything's okay? And she said, and she wrote to me, um, we're in the safe room and uh, I've, I've never heard anything like this in my life. So that was the last time we spoke. And then last time she, she wrote me. After that, I checked on her again and there was uh, no reply. What are your feelings about um, the Israeli Defense Force uh, incursion into Gaza. I've talked to people who have loved ones who were kidnapped who, who are worried uh, about the, the campaign and how it might put their loved ones in harm's way. I, I've talked to people who have kidnapped loved ones in Gaza who feel differently. How do you feel? About the defense force uh, entering Gaza, you mean? Yeah, just about the IDF, about the bombing campaign, about whether you think the IDF is doing the right you know, thing. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no military expert or, or no, I'm not an expert on, on how to do things and how, and how to resolve the situation. I just... Um, so I don't know if I can even comment on that. I'm just... I'm, I'm, I need to, to trust that they're calculating their moves and doing whatever is needed and doing the right thing to defend Israel and to bring back our kidnapped. So, um, Have you received I, any I information about how Nama's doing? Has there been any update on, on, on her? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't received any information, and uh, so I don't. I don't know anything. I don't know about what conditions she's being kept in. Uh, if if she's alone, if she's underground, if she's uh, okay. Um, 
I, I know nothing. Ayala, before you go, what's one thing you want people watching to know about your beloved Nama? What, what's one thing you want people um, to, to, thing, to remember um, her, uh, remember no. about her? I, I want, you know, I want to tell you that this is my daughter. This is my little girl. And the video you see, you know, I want the world to know who she really is. She's a young, bright, uh, peace activist girl, majored in diplomacy, such a belief in the good of people. And that's why she, she is what she is. And she has this, um, she's, determined in every move that she does she's an athlete and and her quiet determination you know it's for me it's an inspiration and i hope it inspires all all of you that are listening and 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 uh, to, to to be determined but maybe not so quiet and maybe we need to you know everybody needs to take action and, and i urge you to do so 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 we get information so we get cooperation so so humanitarian uh, um, health organizations can can enter and and deliver and do their assignment that they're there for and and most and the the most important thing just to to bring Nama back to bring them all back all these two hundred and forty kidnapped yeah that are there and held in Gaza by Hamas ISIS yep bring them home. Ayala uh, Levy uh, Shafar, let's bring them home. I agree. I agree. Let's bring your beloved Nama home. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back. We are coming to the end of my annual auction that I throw with some pals to raise funds for a great organization. It's coming to a close literally as we speak. You can go to ebay.com slash H-F-O-T, Homes for Our Troops, H. F-O-T. Some of the items, you can visit the set of Mythic Quest or Severance. You can Zoom with Jon Stewart or Ahmad Rashad or Elizabeth Banks or Eric Stone Street. You can have lunch with me and Paul Rudd. I know Paul's the attraction. I get it. Or lunch with Aaron Brockovich or lunch with Kevin Pollack. So much more. It's all there. It's all ending in like the next hour or so. All proceeds go to build specially designed homes for the most severely wounded U.S. veterans. eBay.com slash HFOT, Homes for Our Troops. Thank you so much. Wolf Blitzer picks it up right now in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.